This is a podcast from the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law at UNSW. For more information, go to www.caldorcentre.unsw.edu.au. On the 18th of November 2016, the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law hosted its third annual conference entitled From Refugee Emergency to Protracted Exile, The Role of Time in International Protection. This is a recording of the second speaker in the session on Time and Refugee Status Determination, chaired by Farid Vares, Special Counsel Fragerman. This presentation by Bruce Burson from the New Zealand Immigration and Protection Tribunal is entitled Time and the Assessment of Risk in Refugee Status Determination. Mr. Burson was unable to attend the conference and kindly pre-recorded this presentation. Firstly, uh, good morning to you, or good afternoon, I'm not sure what it is. I'd like to thank Jane McCaldor Centre for giving me the opportunity to make this presentation at this very important and timely conference. Uh, I'm sorry I can't be there with you. Uh, Jane's asked me to offer some thoughts on the concept of time and refugee status determination. And in this presentation, I will offer some tentative thoughts on just that, uh, on the nature and role of time in RSD. Uh, the main point I wish to make is that time is everywhere in RSD, albeit typically hidden or dressed up in other concepts or principles. And in emphasizing this point, I'll first make some general observations about the nature of time in RSD and how it relates to key refugee law principles. I'll then examine how the nature of the underlying claim may impact upon the degree to which time influences the outcome. So then, what of time? How should it be conceptualized in RSD? In my opinion, a useful analogy can be drawn with the Roman god Janus. In Roman mythology, Janus was the god of beginnings, transitions and ends. He was responsible for motion, changes and time. Janus was typically depicted on coins and in statue form, facing both forwards and backwards simultaneously. And just like the mythical Janus, time in the process of RSD can also be depicted as pointing simultaneously both forwards and backwards. On the one hand, time faces backwards because refugee claims are grounded in what has happened in the past. They take their hue from factors which are already in existence with the prior passage of time whether it be an inherent or immutable characteristic such as race, or an acquired characteristic such as political opinion or religious belief. The process seeks to identify any relevant characteristics possessed by the claimant. It also seeks to examine what social, economic, legal and political systems and processes have been at play in the claimant's country of origin in the past. It seeks to uncover the extent to which these systems and processes has secured the enjoyment by the claimant of their fundamental human rights. RSD, however, also faces forward in time. It reaches into the future and inquires as to the predicament in, of the claimant in their country of origin. Protection in the host state is granted precisely because it is anticipated that at some point in the future there will be a failure of state protection in respect of the uh, enjoyment of the claimant's fundamental human rights by reason of the Convention Protected Ground. The concept of time therefore pervades the central process of refugee status determination in genus-like terms, delving simultaneously both into the past and into the future. And when we turn from the process of determination and examine some core refugee law principles which underpin that process, again we can see the impact of time. 
Early on, refugee law began to ask itself important questions involving time. First, whose idea of the future matters? We've already noted that many systems adopt the perspective that RSD mandates an inquiry into the future. But is it sufficient that the claimant him or herself perceive some future risk of being persecuted, or must there be some internal, externalised measurement of their future? Now, this question has been largely resolved in favour of the latter argument. It's now widely accepted that when evaluating the claimant's future in terms of the wealth of the fear of being persecuted, an objective standard is to apply. Now, if not exactly crystal ball gazing, this assessment is fundamentally an exercise in conjecture. However, as the Australian High Court has reminded us in Minister of Immigration and Ethnic Affairs, the Guo, while the assessment of future risk is of a conjectural nature, mere conjecture or surmise is insufficient. There must be something more. The conjectural exercise must be informed by a body of evidence which transcends even the genuine concerns of the claimant. There must be a sufficiently solid evidential foundation to enable informed assessments to be made about the claimant's future if returned to their country of origin. A second principle I wish to draw attention to is that refugee law has acknowledged the Janus-like role of time in the relationship between the past and the future. It has been explicitly recognised that where the inquiry reveals the existence of past persecution, this may be a powerful indicator of the future, absent any relevant change in conditions in the country of origin. That said, the application of this principle in any particular case is shaped and moderated by time. In particular, the temporal distribution of any episodes of past persecution will be highly important in shaping the outcome. Where there have been instances of past persecution, the inquiry will seek to understand just how far in the past this has arisen. In those cases where the past persecution has arisen only at some point in the distant past, the impact of time on the application of this principle to the facts, and hence the outcome, will be relatively greater than in cases where the episode or episodes of past persecution have arisen more recently. Equally, where there have been changes in the country conditions, the inquiry must necessarily encompass not simply the nature of those changes, but how durable they are. The point here is that a non-durable change in the country conditions is unlikely to be sufficient to effectively reduce the underlying risk to the claimant. And within the concept of durability sits time. To say something is durable is, in my opinion, to necessarily imply a foreseeable continuation of that thing's existence in time. If the relevant change arises in the near past, then, depending on the country concerned, the passage of time elapsing between the change and the data determination may be insufficient to allow a finding to be made that the change is of a durable nature. Think here, changes to government in Somalia. They've come and gone in various forms over the past 20 years, and the issue of durability in terms of the governance arrangements existing at the date of termination in such a case must necessarily be central to the analysis of future risk. Now, to me, what these principles reveal is that, albeit hidden from view, time is at the heart of the assessment of risk. Fundamentally, RSD is a process exercising resting on a minimum degree of predictive certainty as to the effects and impact of time. In order for the claimant to be recognised as a refugee, the evidence before the decision maker must present with a sufficient degree of predictive certainty as to the risk of being persecuted for a convention ground at some relevant point in future time. 
but how much certainty of risk is enough? Here, refugee law has settled on an approach which requires only that the claimant establish a low degree of certainty, variously called a real chance, a real risk, or a reasonable degree of likelihood. Judges and scholars alike are agreed that the degree of risk is suddenly more than mere conjecture or surmise, but sitting well below the balance of probability standard. While Madsen's statement of a 1 in 10 ratio is widely understood to accurately encapsulate the low degree of predictive certainty which underpins the real chance threshold. But what is real is context dependent. The effect of time is not uniformly felt across cases. We have already noted how the temporal distribution of any episodes of past persecution may affect the outcome. The impact of time will, however, also vary according to the nature of the claim, and in particular, it differs between more individualised claims and claims of a more generalised nature. The impact of time is less critical where the accepted basis of claim comprises individualised action by the claimant, even where there are no instances of past persecution. Take, for example, a claim based on extensive anti-regime activity uh, by a claimant in a country with a repressive political environment, in which the arbitrary detention and serious ill-treatment of detainees is pervasive. The claimant may have been able to get away with it so far, but is worried that his or her luck may run out. In such a claim, the risk of qualifying harm occurring at the real chance threshold will arise in a foreshortened time frame, particularly if the exhibit evidence discloses that the regime in question is already aware of the claimant's activities. Over longer time frames, the risk of qualifying harm occurring in such cases would transcend the real chance threshold and to something approximating at the very least the balance of probabilities threshold. In extreme cases, over extended time frames, the probability of risk of harm arising may approach the level of near certainty. But what of a more generalised claim, where the risk is grounded not in any particular activity of the claimant, but in events or processes of a generalised nature affecting society at large or significant portions of it, and the claimant fears that, in time, they too will be affected? In my view, time weighs more heavily on such a claim than in the previous type of case. And the climate change cases I've recently dealt with here at IPT, I think, are a good example of this. Both AF Kiribati and AC Tuvalu decided in 2013 and 2015, respectively. Uh, these were claims grounded in the current and anticipated future adverse effects of climate change. Now, these include uh, slow onset processes such as sea level rise and rising sea temperatures and sudden onset events such as hurricanes and associated storm surges. The first issue I consider is what relevant rules of time were to apply. Unlike the individuated activity type of case, these claims were not grounded in anything these particular claimants had done, but were instead grounded in conditions of a more generalised impact. Did this context call for a different set of rules as to the assessment of future risk? In the Kiribati case, I noted that the Human Rights Committee in the Albersberg case, uh, which had also involved a complaint grounded in generalized, uh, conditions of generalised impact, uh, had applied an imminent standard. Now, this complaint, this uh, complaint uh, concerned uh, uh, 2,000 Dutch citizens who complained that Dutch law, uh, which recognised the lawfulness of the potential use of nuclear weapons, put theirs and many other lives at risk. The committee rejected the argument and ruled the complaint admissible because the risk was not sufficiently imminent. 
And while the committee's use of eminence was formed by its own case law, which required that uh, for the purposes of uh, bringing a complaint from the first optional protocol to the ICCPR, uh, the risk of violation must be imminent. It was nevertheless important, in my view, to say something about imminence as a potential threshold for future risk in claims grounded in generalised conditions. Now, to my thinking, to say something is imminent is to give it a greater degree of predictive certainty than the 1 in 10 probability that characterises the real child standard. And if one looks at how imminence is understood in other contexts, it seems clear to me that it's inappropriate to import this into RSD. Take, for example, the right to self-defense under Article 51 of the Charter of the United Nations. This is widely, but not universally, accepted as including a right to preemptive self-defense in order to avert the threat of an imminent attack. Now, proponents of such a right agree that the criteria set out in the correspondence passing between the UK and US governments in the Caroline case, a case from the mid-1800s, are the relevant criteria. Now, this was an incident in which the British preemptively destroyed a US vessel. Uh, now, this standard requires, and I quote from the correspondence here, a necessity of self-defence, instant, overwhelming, leaving no choice of means and no moment for deliberation. Now, so understood, this conceptualisation of eminence envisages, in my view, a more immediate time frame for qualified harm to arise than that contemplated by the real chance standard in refugee law. And for this reason, although the Human Rights Committee had applied eminence in the context of the generalised claim in Albersburg, I decided that this there were no special rules to apply in the climate cases, even though they were similarly based on generalised conditions. Rather, in my view, it was ordinary real chance then that was to apply, and that imminence, at least in the context of refugee and protection claims, should not be understood as imposing any higher degree of predictive certainty. Now, in retrospect, I think I would phrase the decision slightly differently, as I now believe it's a mistake to even import the language of imminence into YRSD. Yet even if we accept that the more immediate band of future time encapsulated by the concept of eminence is inappropriate to RSD, nevertheless, time still weighs heavily in such cases. It's true that the very generalised nature of the underlying drivers of such claims necessarily imports a degree of predictive certainty which can and must be factored into the assessment. In climate-related cases, sudden onset events such as monsoon flooding, hurricanes, king tides and the like regularly occur. In slow onset processes, by their very nature, are perpetually in motion. There is a degree of residual predictive certainty. But this degree of predictive certainty is insufficient. This is predictive certainty as to context, not as to risk. The assessment of risk in such cases is far more complex. For risk, we need to drill down deeper. Who exactly is affected and in what circumstances? Moreover, what factors, if any, may arise which may not just increase risk, but also reduce risk. Now, another common type of generalised claim concerns the impact of armed conflict. Now, in New Zealand, we have no legislative equivalent to Article 15C of the EU Qualification Directive, which, along with Article 2F, allows for complementary protection to be granted where there exists a real risk of suffering serious harm in the form of, and I quote here, serious and individual threat to a civilian's life or person by reason of indiscriminate violence in situations of international or non-internal or internal armed conflict. 
Now, it's fair to say this rather clumsy language arising from these articles has generated a fair amount of judicial and scholarly debate over exactly what they mean. I do think, however, that member states were correct to peg the degree of predicted certainty at the level of real risk and without the need for claimants in such cases to show an imminent risk. And in terms of the jurisprudence emerging in respect of Article 15c from the European courts, I think there is some commonality of approach with the climate cases in that. While there may be a certain degree of predicted certainty as to the overall context, this is generally insufficient to establish a risk of qualifying harm at the real chance or real risk level. Thus, in the Algarve case, the Court of Justice of the European Union held that, so far as protection of the QD was concerned, risk linked merely to the general situation in the country was not, as a rule, sufficient. Now, while the Court accepted that there could be situations in which the degree of indiscriminate violence was of such a high level that an individual would face a real risk solely on account of his or her presence there, these situations were envisaged to be exceptional. Furthermore, through the decisions in Al Ghafaji and more recently in Diakite, the Court of Justice of the European Union has adopted a sliding scale approach. Effectively, this means that more the applicant can establish that he or she is specifically affected by reasons or factors particular to themselves the lower the level of indiscriminate violence required by him or her to be eligible for protection. Now, as with the climate-related cases, the practice of national courts in implementing this approach has been to look beyond the predictive certainty of the overall context and to undertake a more fine-grained analysis on the question of risk. Indeed, a highly nuanced approach appears to be emerging which focuses not simply on a quantitative analysis in the, crude, in the form of a crude body count of civilians killed, but includes something of a qualitative analysis which looks at indirect threats such as displacement, food and housing insecurity, and increasing criminality. Now, of course, the conflict may have been going on for months, if not years, with particular patterns of associated violence by the time it comes for determination. This would need to be factored into the inquiry, and indeed, in the context of a case concerning Iraq, the UK Upper Tribunal has expressly accepted that a relevant dimension of the assessment is to take proper account of time. Nevertheless, whether it be climate or conflict related, time weighs more heavily in cases grounded in generalised conditions of impact. Now, while at certain thresholds or magnitudes, such generalised conditions may create broad-based risks of qualifying harm to the affected populations at the real chance level, short of those thresholds or magnitudes being already in existence, or coming into existence in the near term relative to the date of determination, the more heavy the impact of time will be. Thus, the nature of the claim influences the relevant point of future time in which the real chance threshold of risk may be reached. And herein lies the problem. Over longer time horizons, it may be possible to conclude that increasing numbers of people will, for example, be affected by ongoing and worsening conflict, or by the obvious effects of more frequent and intense disasters linked to climate change. But the longer the time horizon contemplated for these thresholds or magnitudes to be reached, the less real and more speculative becomes the risk of qualifying harm as at the date of decision. This is because there is more opportunity for risk-reducing factors to intrude. In the context of climate-related cases, there is greater opportunity for physical adaptation measures to be taken, or disaster risk reduction or disaster risk management policies to be developed and implemented. As for conflicts, well, we know they escalate. They also de-escalate. They change vectors. 
outside interventions may occur. In either case, and contrary to the more individuated type of claim, extending the relevant point in time further into the future may not operate so as to elevate the foreseeability of qualifying harm to a near predicted certainty, but instead may operate so as to reduce the predicted certainty to the level of mere conjecture or surmise. So in summary, in my view, time has a complex, hidden, but central role in RSD. It pervades the task at hand for all of us. As decision makers, lawyers and advocates, I think we need to be more sensitive to the role time plays in both the process and law of refugee status. We need to also better understand how we can time may influence the outcome of cases. Thank you very much.